This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Now and Not Yet. Pressing in when you're waiting, wanting, and restless for more. Written and narrated by best-selling author Ruth Cho Simons and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Welcome to The Cartographers, where we map the changing cultural landscape for 21st century Christian leaders. Expect thoughtful conversations with hosts Bryce and Ashley Hales, a pastor and PhD, along with their guests to help you navigate a changing cultural landscape. Listen in. Today on The Cartographers, we are continuing our series, Stuck in the Middle, examining the culture wars from a theological perspective. In this series, we've been seeking to chart a way through the culture wars rather than just capitulating to left or right. To do this, we've had several conversations with experts who are helping to give us better categories to understand what's going on, categories beyond just left and right. And we're also talking with practitioners to discover how they are navigating these turbulent waters in real life. Today, we're talking with Pastor Brandon Washington about race, the evangelical church, and how he has found an uneasy home there. Stay with us. Well, welcome back to The Cartographers. We are in the midst of a series called Stuck in the Middle, examining the American culture wars, trying to understand what's going on, and helping Christian leaders chart a way through uh, with hope and with faithfulness. And today we're talking to Brandon Washington. Brandon is a uh, graduate of Denver Seminary. He is the pastor of uh, Embassy Christian Bible Church in Denver. I actually feel like I should double check that with you, Brandon, because I think your church uh, has merged recently. Is that is that the name of your church still? That is the new name of the church. That's the yes. new name of your church. Yeah, okay. you're, you're caught up. You're caught up. Awesome. Okay. And and then is also, Brandon's also the author of a new book, uh, A Burning House, Redeeming American Evangelicalism by Examining Its History, Mission, and Message. So Brandon, we are really excited to talk with you today. So much. Uh, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. So, Brandon, um, as you know, uh, evangelical Christianity is, or I feel like I should say at least it was once a theologically driven movement. Uh, it was concerned with the gospel, the, the, the evangel, and the centrality of the gospel across various Christian denominations and traditions. But in recent years, um, one of the things that many people have noticed is that evangelicalism seems to be morphing into more of a culturally driven movement and less of a theologically rooted movement. And so uh, even to the the extent that many Christians who are theologically tied to evangelicalism don't really use the word evangelical. Um, But you have uh, put the word right in your subtitle. And so I, I was hoping we could start off by just defining the term. How are you using the word evangelical and then especially given your subtitle, talk to us about why the history, the mission, the message are important to understanding what uh, evangelicalism is. 
Okay, so I think the one of the best ways to answer that question, to respond to that, is to start with the thing, the experience that prompted the book in the first place. So about uh, this is twenty, this is two thousand twenty-three. I've lost track of all time because the pandemic <laughs> threw everything on its head. I hear um, you. Yeah, but in two thousand, I believe nineteen or twenty, I I wrote an article that was published in Christianity Today entitled "Black and Evangelical: Why I Keep the Label." And uh, in that article, I tell a story of a friend of mine who just a year or two earlier was with me while I was uh, while I was registering for the Evangelical Theological Society's annual conference, and uh, and that's how he discovered that I am a that I am a member of, of ETS and I self-identify as an evangelical. And he challenged me on that because he said that evangelicalism, it, it, is, it undermines much of our culture, many of the, the values that are common to the black church. And, uh, and, they, and they do not have as a whole, he's generalizing here, as a whole, evangelicalism does not see the gospel in as, in as comprehensive a way as the black church does. So uh, we went back and forth about that. And the thing that surprised him was I was willing to concede the legitimacy of some of his concerns. But I, I said to him, I believe that what you're describing is not unadulterated evangelicalism. I think you're, you're describing Americanized evangelicalism. If, if we were to evaluate it from a global perspective, I don't think that you would find many of those shortcomings. So uh, I, I, I said to him that one, the thing that draws me into evangelical evangelicalism as a movement is, uh, uh, I, I made reference to Bevington's quadrilateral, and David Bevington argued that evangelicalism is a movement that values the gospel, the Bible, conversions, and activism. And I said, what I think you're noticing is American evangelicalism defined uh, activism in very precise in a very precise way, which allowed for a racialization of the gospel. It also allowed for a sexualization of the gospel. I I, I make reference to that occasionally throughout the book, but that wasn't the, that was beyond the book's scope, so I didn't take that route but i think that it uh, the gospel and the, and the way we do theology in evangelicalism determined what a woman's worth is and it also put limits on what social action can be and i have to say that carefully because i'm not saying that evangelicalism is not is not activistic if if you look at most not most but many hospitals in america and orphanages and the stance that the church takes regarding biblical marriage and uh, and the sanctity of life, I think that those would be move, uh, actions that come out of activism. But the the but when it came to the racialization of of how we approach ethics, I think that uh, evangelicalism had to take a position that allowed for a, a, a an ethnic caste system. And that was the beginning of the of the perversion of both the word and the movement evangelical. I said, you're running from that, and I affirm your decision to run from that. But I think there can be some redemption if we move it back to its purest, unadulterated form. And my agenda was to do that in that article and the book of Burning House, it springs forth from the article I wrote for CT. Wow. Yeah. Thanks um, for that. And, and so th- the title of your book, Burning House, is a uh, is a reference to um, 
a quote that it sounds like it was attributed to Martin Luther King. I mean, I'm assuming that it, it sounds like it's accurate, but where he said, I've come to believe that we are integrating into a burning house. So I, I know this is a huge question, but could you just tell us how you see the evangelical house on fire? So before I was a believer, um, and, and, and I always want to start here because uh, everyone's story lends, it provides the lenses through which you assess something. So before becoming a Christian, I was a member of a racist segregationist cult called the Nation of Islam. And uh, that was the entirety of my, that started at my adolescence and it ended uh, during my last year of high school. And, uh, and I was in a no man's land trying to figure out what life meant during my freshman year of college. I experienced conversion during my sophomore year of college. And when I came into the church, one of the struggles I had, one of the observations I made is often the church resembled the segregationist cult out of which I'd come. That cult was preaching an anti-gospel. And here we are claiming the gospel which is supposed to bring wholeness to that which is broken. And we look and behave and sound just like the segregationist cult out of which God had delivered me. So because of that, I made it a part of my mission almost immediately to integrate the church. There was a, there was a goal I had to integrate the church. I pastor a church now that is, that is approximately 60% black and the balance is white and uh and latino and asian it's uh and in in the context of church dynamics or you know cultural and ethnic dynamics it is a, it is a peculiar mission it, that that did not occur accidentally not at all so the the uh, that has been a value of mine almost immediately because i was running away from the racism that was common to the cult that i was in prior to becoming a believer and i started to wonder this, this, this thought came up maybe 10, 15 years ago. Am I causing harm to the people I'm calling into, the people I'm inviting into evangelicalism? It, could it be that I'm inviting them into a house that is on fire and will cause them injury because many of the people who claim that label, who are identified with that movement, they are relational arsonists. And they both explicitly and and covertly espouse that same caste system, that segregationist perspective on who we are, and they bring those values into the church, is the house to which I am inviting them on fire. Uh, that actually did not, that, that title didn't actually start with Martin Luther King. That's a James Baldwin quote. Uh, he wrote an article entitled The Fire Next Time, and he asked, do I wish to be integrated into a burning house? And I'm glad you mentioned Martin Luther King uh, whenever we discuss Martin Luther King, uh, we quote him uh, according to the language he used around integration and his use of, of his use of the Declaration of Independence. But I've noticed that we always stop the quotes at around 1963 and his "I Have a Dream" speech. We, we we constantly refer to the the this the content of character versus color of skin quote. That's a that's a easy big idea reference, uh, but everyone overlooks the reality that after 1963, starting around late 1964, early 1965, he regretted much of what he said in that speech. He said it was naive and it was, uh, it was, it was short-sighted. And there was an occasion when he was 
uh, in a conversation with Harry Belafonte. And in that conversation, in fact, that conversation occurred in 1968, only about a month before he was assassinated. Uh, he, he said, I believe we've integrated our people into a burning house. He referred to the reality, he's referring to the reality that he had been advocating for integration, but his argument is what good is it if we get everyone into the same space, if the house is on fire because arsonists occupy the house with you? So he regretted that language. He actually co-opted that, that phrase, a burning house, from James Baldwin, who used it in an essay that he wrote entitled The Fire Next Time. Uh, Baldwin said, do I wish to be integrated into a burning house? And James Baldwin is often cited as the poet of the civil rights movement and an affirmation of that. Martin Luther King would use that phrase after 1963 to communicate the complexities of integration in America. So help, help me understand, um, Brandon, the, the, the comparison you're making, you, you kind of said, um, you were a member of the Nation of Islam, and then uh, coming into the Christian Church, there there was a it felt very similar, and yet um, the Nation of Islam, a black nationalist organization that that you said is a racist cult, um, the you come into the Christian Church. I'm I'm assuming you're not uh, in a congregation that's like uh, explicitly preaching white supremacy right so uh, help kind of make that connection for me help help me understand that connection you're making no it was the struggle i had was more along the lines of no one no one was no one was as overt as the nation of islam regarding language the rhetoric was not the same but i struggled with the fact that we were not deliberate we were not trying to be a representative body that reflects what the kingdom is and with a, and with a whole uh, representative group of people who, who are surrendered to the Christ our King, what that would look like. We did not do so deliberately. And because of that, we often looked like the cult out of which I came. I want to say this as well. In addition to not being deliberate, there were there, there is a faction within the, within the church that valued the segregation not with the same malice as the Nation of Islam. I want to be very careful on that. But it's more out of a reactionary fear of what may happen if you integrate the body. So, so we were being, we were being, we, we took a passive approach. And when we were active, it was it, it resulted in segregation that was along the same lines as the cult out of which I've come. And I and I wanted to take a stand against that. When I from the moment I became a pastor, my goal was to have a body that was diverse and integrated. We use both terms because it's possible for you to be diverse, which makes for a very good photo op, but the lives are not integrated. And so we insist on them living in community together. The, the, their home groups are not allowed to be segregated home groups. It's a, it's a value of ours. It's me. Much of this is theology that was highlighted as I was running away from a segregationist cult that inform my adolescent years. Mm, yeah. And, you know, how would you say that American evangelicalism has changed lately? You know, if there is kind of this residual kind of segregationalist impulse, unfortunately, in a lot of American evangelicalism, has that just intensified, um, in, you know, post-Trump, um, that it's morphing into, you write, into something that is 
unhealthy. How would you kind of articulate that change more specifically, maybe in the last decade or so? Okay, so so I would say that's a very good question. I would say that the last decade is not a new thing. It's the coming out of an old thing. Okay, so uh, evangelicalism always had complexities because all theology is done within a cultural context. So evangelicalism had to struggle with its ethics during slavery. And that's why we have uh, evangelical fathers like Jonathan Edwards, who were slave owners. They, they, those are struggling with what, how do you reconcile our theology with the culture in which we exist? And the same thing occurred uh, in the aftermath of the Civil War as you're going into the Jim Crow segregation era and the ethnic caste system put on display. The church had to, make us, had to come to where it was going to stand on those issues. I would argue that evan- American evangelicalism, as we use the language now, is only about 50 years old. Because at around that time, it went, it became politicized. It, it, it aligned itself with a political movement, and and it did so amidst some opposition. And what you're noticing in the last ten years is the opposition is losing the struggle. So ideas that were always present, values that were always present, have come forth because because you have personalities that that gave everyone license to say out loud the values that they held privately. And to and, and, we're, and we're moving, I think what we're experiencing right now is a societal bungee that's trying to call us back to a previous time. That's why the language of make America great again can be terrifying to black evangelicals. Because the question is, when was it great? That would go, give, us the, give us the year, because if you go back too far, you're gonna deal with slavery. You go back, you go back a few decades, you're gonna deal with segregation, okay? So the societal bungee is trying to pull us back to a time and and everyone's able to say it out loud now because we have personalities that gave it legitimacy on a public platform. Yeah, you know, one of my questions going into this series is about the culture wars are, you know, are a lot of these culture wars actually a white thing? You know, are they kind of infighting amongst white folks, whether that's evangelicals or not, to try to maintain some sort of past fake, you know, golden age of the 1950s. You know, our culture is the fighting kind of culture war fever pitch in political life, something that's actually often used for folks who are in majority cultural spaces to actually not deal with the past sins of the American Republic. Yes, I love okay. this. That's, that's- <laughs> Yes, Ashley, you're good at this. Okay, so I, I just so you know, let me let me give it to you from, and I'm generalizing here, and I want to I want to be clear on the fact that I'm aware of that. But from a black perspective, this is not a culture war. It's not. In fact, what, you, what from a black perspective, African Americans, black people, created a culture that was shaped, it was molded during transatlantic slavery, chattel slavery, and Jim Crow. And, and, and have always taken on, and somewhat proudly, taken on the role of being a subculture, one of the columns that holds American culture up. What I think you're noticing now is, first of all, African-Americans were not the only ones doing that. Uh, women were doing that, and, and Latino community was doing that, and Asian-Americans were doing that. And 
what's happening is we're approaching a time when the, the combined total of those subcultures are going to outnumber the dominant culture. And the concern is what will happen when we are no longer the dominant culture? And so in response, the, 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 the tactic is let's, uh, let's apply the societal bungee that pulls us back to the normalization, the universalizing of the dominant culture. And often you do that in ways that should be shocking to the conscience, book banning and the revising of the American past, rewriting history, mythologizing regarding who we are historically. That's how you undermine the legitimacy of some of these subdominant cultures and maintain your role of dominance in your country. And, you know, Brandon, it, it seems like one of the issues here is that evangelicalism has tended to, um, in recent years, be very resistant towards uh, criticism. And um, <laughs> you would think that um, a, a movement built on the authority of Scripture, the, uh, a movement that um, you know includes like th- this prophetic impulse, right? The, 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 the Old Testament prophets are so often calling God's people to repentance towards their better to their better selves. Um, that that's who we are. And yet that hasn't, that's not the way that things have played out. Uh, no, in fact, the, the, the early to mid 20th century strategy of the movement that now bears the name evangelical, I'll actually say it's not evangelicalism at all. It's fundamentalism cloaked behind the term evangelical, but the strategy was deliberate isolation. It was, yeah, so you had, colleges that that popped up and the intent was to be an isolated place that did not enter into dialogue with opposing ideas if if the the approach to this was we're going to avoid the brainwashing of our children by denying them access to alternative ideas and that was the birth the early 20th century birth of fundamentalism and and I, I would argue that the re, that we're reaping the fruits, the negative fruits of that now. Had had the American evangelical movement existed in communication with global evangelicalism during the Jim Crow era, they would have had to contend with the with the ideas of people like uh, Desmond Tutu, who would have asked questions regarding apartheid, segregation, and theologically challenged those ideas. But because we were never the, the movement never exposed itself to alternative perspectives, it became an echo chamber that relished in the in the re- repetition of the ideas that we had, and it and it culminated in the segregation that became a functional value, and we're seeing a callback to an earlier time in history, and the fear is that we're going to repeat that past. So one of the things that I appreciated about your book is that it's it's very clear on the critique, and yet it's also very hopeful. So um, where do we go from here? <laughs> what, solve all of yeah, the know, problems. Solve the problem for us. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The, uh, I, I'll tell you, the, uh, the, uh, the hardest chapter to write was the last one because you have to answer, you have to, you know, you have to deal with everything you've said up to that point. And then you have to, you have to provide the but. 
And for me, the but is the gospel. I think that one of the mistakes we made, one of the many, is we've truncated the gospel. We have, we've removed the reality that our that Christ is not only the incarnate Savior who resurrected to to affirm to legitimize the salvation, but He ascended. He He presently sits on a throne. Not one day, present tense. He reigns from that throne. I believe we've removed that part of the gospel from our message. And we're teaching everyone to to anticipate the day when he will reign as king. But if he is presently king, then we, and we are off, not just citizens of that kingdom, but officers. Paul calls us the ambassadors of that king. If we are officers in that kingdom, then it is our responsibility to pick up the mantle. He commissioned us. We call it the Great Commission because before he took that throne, he gave us the responsibility of continuing that mission. We have to take up that mantle and go forth and propagate the culture, the values, the identity of the king and his kingdom. We're not supposed to wait for his return. We're supposed to be diligent and working toward that until he returns. He'll culminate the thing. He'll finish it. But we're supposed to be about it right now. If that is the gospel, then we cannot be without hope. He did not merely merely come and do something in a moment. He came and laid the work. He armed us to nurture the culture of his kingdom. And we are derelict if we do not seek the values of the king and his kingdom. I cannot be hopeless if the king still reigns and the gospel is still in my hands to wield. Oh gosh, that's that's beautiful. Thank you. Um, I, I I am curious. Okay, so a minute ago you talked about the the black church as sort of one one column. I think is the phrase that you used. Um, and I, I'm wondering if you envision and then and then you just ta- you were talking about populating the culture with kingdom values. So do you envision that looking like? Uh, the evangelical church sort of giving up its obsession with cultural dominance and adopting sort of an exilic posture and saying, we're going to be content with being one column of this kind of culture, cultural movement that we're a part of, uh, you know, broader American culture. Is that what you're saying? Or, Or are you talking about sort of a so populate mainstream culture with gospel values that, mainstream culture increasingly reflects the values of the kingdom of God. I, uh, we, I mentioned earlier that a tactic of American fundamentalism was to isolate itself, to silo itself from the rest of the Christian world. I believe that the way we recover from the season we're in now is we must expose ourselves to the experiences. And, and I'm talking about orthodox ideas. I'm not talking about being irresponsible and just subjecting you to yourself to everything. I mean, but, and, but the experiences and the orthodox ideas of believers from other cultural and experiential contexts, because experience often gives you lenses that allows you to see the world from a different perspective. And that will affect how you see the gospel applied. Uh, my, my, my favorite way of illustrating that is my wife drives a minivan. And before we got married, she made me promise I would not buy a minivan. <laughs> she made me promise. And then we had children. 
so her so, so her four door sedan could not accommodate rear facing. I have a whole different perspective on this. Rear facing car seats take up two seats because if it's rear since it's rear facing, the passenger seat in the car is now useless. And it also we also had diaper bags and skittles and, and all of that <laughs> stuff. Um, strollers. Yeah. And so she realized, okay, we need we need something more than this. But she insisted on it not being a minivan. We rented a minivan just coincidentally. I'm going to claim that it was coincidental. <laughs> um, we almost have the exact same story. I was going to say, my wife had the, <laughs> had the exact same experience that you're just describing. Oh, here. but I, I, I'm hoping I'm hoping your conclusion was the same because uh, we, 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 we're from Dallas. So we were driving from Denver to Dallas. And since we had two kids, it was going to be less expensive for us to just drive instead of getting four plane tickets. And I rented a Chrysler Town and Country. And before, what we, we reached about the halfway mark. We were in Oklahoma somewhere. And my wife said, I can do this. I can do this. And by the time we got back to Denver, she was a, a fan. The, you know, the DVD player and, and the kids have their own Bluetooth headphones, so she doesn't have to listen to what they're listening to. It's just she fell in love with it. it, it she, <laughs> the key fob opens all the important doors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, so we came back to Denver, bought one within a week. And as we're pulling out of the car dealership, a, a Chrysler Town and Country drove right by us. A twin vehicle. It was, it was even the same color. And before we got home, we saw four more, at least four more. Okay. Now, we don't believe, we do not believe that word got out that we bought this car and we're the Kardashians. <laughs> so we said culture. So a whole bunch of other people bought it. No, those vehicles were always there. We just never noticed them until we had a Chrysler Town and Country experience. The experience gave us lenses to see something that was always there. Okay. I'm not saying that the black observations of justice or injustice in the world, the fact that they see it. I'm not saying it creates that reality. I'm saying that their experiences allow them to see it. Now, you don't have to have those experiences because you have me. And if you have me, you can inherit my experiences. I believe that when the church in America decided to isolate itself, we shut ourselves off from the experiences and the corresponding observations of people from other contexts. And the solution is to, is to repent of that and sit at the feet of, of orthodox minds, Christian minds, who are making observations that are foreign to you. And that will shape, it will revise. The, the language I use in the book is it will amend the, the, your hermeneutic. Your lenses will change and you'll be able to see some things that they see, which will then shape how we apply the gospel in a fallen world. This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At Bow, we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, 
Bow offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. You know, given that injunction and and your beautiful re you know, helping us kind of reimagine or rearticulate what does it look like to live out kind of kingdom values, what do you recommend? Um let's say you live and you know, you've been committed to your local church, it's orthodox, but maybe, you know, you don't have you don't have African Americans in your local church, what does one do? Are there besides your fabulous book? Um, but you know, are there other things that we should do to read to to begin to take that posture of sitting at the feet of someone who has a vastly different experience from our own? Uh, I'm a, I'm I am a and and Bryce, you and I touched on this earlier. I'm a bibliophile, so so I will always default. If nothing else, I will always default to reading. And I'm, I'm not just talking about uh, reading theological works so you can have a, an entirely theological assessment of something, but to expose yourself to other cultures. So I tell people all the time, I recommend books like The Fire Next Time, James Baldwin. James Baldwin was not a believer and had some uh, some lifestyle complications that would be a theological problem for an evangelical. But his, his perspective on the American struggle is something that everyone should familiarize themselves with. I tell people often, I'm not that guy, while I value diversity and integration in the church, I'm not that guy who's going to show up in hockey puck, Nebraska, walk into a church and say, where are the black people? The response is, there are no black people here, okay? But I, I want us to make a very careful distinction here, and I actually address this in the introduction briefly. There's a, there's a difference between well, first of all, race, as we use the term, is a non-thing. There's a race is a humanity is a race, but racial divisions, the racialization of language, is something we should war against. And because of that, we should not use race and ethnicity as synonyms because they are not. And culture is distinct from ethnicity. And I mentioned that because it is possible for you to have. A, an appreciation for a culture, even if the ethnic representatives of that culture are absent. So, so, so diversity should not just be we have representatives of all these people groups here. If you teach the value of, if you teach the body to value the other, and see the dignity of people from different ethnic and cultural settings then even if it's a church that's comprised of one ethnic group, that church is much more in line with the kingdom agenda than one where we simply say, we're going to be who we are and everyone would do well to be just like us. So expose yourself to other cultural norms. Read James Baldwin and Langston Hughes, uh, Toni Morrison. Expose yourself to these different cultural settings. And in addition to that, whenever possible, Expose yourself to individuals who represent those other cultural settings. Don't just know their work, but know them. Go find them. Whenever someone says it's hard to do that, I, I'm, I'm put off because Black people have to do that all the time. Had I not been bicultural, had I not code switched, 
I would not have graduated from seminary. So, so don't tell me it can't be done. I know firsthand it can be done. Mm-hmm. We're just being lazy otherwise, you know, and I, I'm just reminded of, you know, my backgrounds in, in literature and, you know, any good reader, right. Any good student of literature, part of, part of what, how literature forms us, right. Is to begin to develop a sympathetic imagination and begin to imagine what it looks like to have a vastly different experience. And I think that's tremendously encouraging for folks who are like, great, I would love to be in a more diverse, integrated place or, you know, religious experience, but that may not be immediately available. And there is something still that we can do. You can grow your sympathetic imagination through through reading. That's wonderful. Thanks. I love that. Yeah. Sympathetic imagination. I am so stealing that from you. You may. (laughs) You know, I mean, one of the things that does strike me here, though, Brandon, I mean, you talked about your experience of going to seminary and I'm assuming a predominantly Anglo uh, seminary and just how stretching that is. And one of the things that Ashley and I have often reflected on, and I'm not sure if we talked about this on the podcast, but um it may, I think it's obvious to listen. I don't know that Ashley and I are married to each other. <laughs> that, um, Surprise! But when a year after we were married, we moved to Scotland and we thought that we were moving um, to a place that was broadly similar to the U.S. And it is. But, you know, uh, Churchill famously said that the United States, and the United Kingdom are two countries separated by a common language, two cultures separated by a common language. And we for three years just experienced uh, getting what we called the look, which is when a Scottish person wants an American person to know that we think you're stupid <laughs> because of the the words you. And so living in that environment, and it's a long, it's almost 20 years ago now since we moved back to the U.S. But we've often reflected on how formative that was of just feeling like the outsider. Um, how, how do you think about the, the, helping Christians who haven't had that experience? Um, grow in the the desire, uh, the the need to understand uh, the the kind of biblical imperative for developing what Ashley's calling a sympathetic Im- imagination. You have to inconvenience yourself so you can expose yourself, so you can be exposed to the experience of being the other. I, I don't know, I don't know if understanding that is something that could be limited to an intellectual exercise. I think some things have to be experienced. Though one of my teammates at the church said, he says some things are caught, some things are taught, and some things are caught, and you catch them by experiencing them. So, so you may have to leave, you may have to leave hockey puck Nebraska, and experience a a, a national mission trip where you where you live in Atlanta, where you live in Memphis, you live in Detroit, and experience some of the complexities that are foreign to the place that you're from. My experience in seminary, I'm actually glad you made reference to that. The I went to a seminary of about a thousand students and 33 of us were black. And not 33%. <laughs> 33. No, I, 33, I knew every black student. I was a president of the Black Student Fellowship. I knew every black student. And one of the, re- the reason the Black Student Fellowship existed is we realize that our classmates are immersed in their culture and they're so immersed in their culture that they don't realize they have one. And we were constantly aware of the cultural distinction. The Churchill quote is perfect. Okay. We were one faith 
We're one faith. But there was a cultural separation that existed within us. And no and everyone was oblivious to it except those who were who were experiencing the 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 seminary process from the perspective of the other. And I think that's that that gave me a perspective on this that I hope can be shared. But I'm but my conclusion is some things cannot be merely read and intellectually grasped. So you have to experience it. So inconvenience yourself to go to another place, even temporarily for a season, so you can know what it's like to be in that subdominant group. That's huge. You know, and I think one of the reactions to um to realizing, you know, this disparity, you know, or you know, to I guess another way to put it is one way in which folks might react against this conflation of Christian belief with a majority white culture is to, to kind of be on the way out the door, right? To folks that are, you know, they're calling it the great de-churching now or, you know, deconstruction maybe into Russell Moore in his newest book talks about deconstruction, not from, you know, into skepticism, but actually a deconstruction into cynicism. And so I think, you know, for those types of folks who might be listening, what would you say would be a good next step for that for that reaction? I believe that I believe that, and I think I think I think that Dr. Moore would agree with this. I believe that virtuous deconstruction is a good thing. I think it's a product of good theological method and Christian apologetics. I don't mean this deconstruction in in, in that it's unsupervised or. Uh, or deconstruction with the where, where deconstruction is the sole agenda. I think deconstruction for the sake of comprehension is a responsibility of all believers. Uh, but for me, seminary was a matter of asking myself hard questions, very inconvenient questions about the faith that I brought to seminary. And I did that under the guidance, under the tutelage of of professors, leaders who are friends of mine to this day, whom I hold in very high regard. And I think that it behooves every believer to step back and assess what they have identified as their faith. Because, because if you don't do that, then you just, you're merely going through the motions. You're parroting your parents' faith. You're parroting what your pastor told you. And it's not your own. And the problem with that is you, you may perpetuate a bad thing. And you do it sometimes unwittingly because you never step back to assess, wait, why do we do this? Why is it like that? And and you have to to have a surrendered, open-handed heart because sometimes the thing that you have to assess critically is a value that you've identified with and it may be a stumbling block for a moment, but the outcome is better. Brandon, um, last question I want to ask you. Uh, one of the um, groups of our audience is, is Christian leaders, pastors and otherwise. And I, I think a lot of um, leaders in the church are noticing the trends that we've been talking about, the kind of um, political captivity of evangelicalism. And it, it's easy to, to spot that. Um, a lot of those leaders feel like when they begin speaking to it, uh, they're putting their head above the parapet and getting shot at from both sides. 
what what hope, what comfort, what advice, what exhortation would you uh, offer to uh, to leaders in that spot? You know, uh, that's I, that's a good question. I have I have a response, but I don't know how well it will go over. Um, uh, I'm still in a season of learning what that looks like. My my progressive friends are offended by my conservatism and my conservative friends think I'm progressive. I think that I live in the middle. And, but now, instead of giving advice on how to handle that, because honestly, I don't like advising people on something that I'm still trying to figure out myself. But I, I will say this, Your, our eyes should be fixed on the kingdom, not the tribes and not the partisan camps that lay claim to the movement that is supposed to reflect the kingdom. And so in those hard times, when I'm, I'm to be, I need to be very clear here. I have lost people who I call friends. I have, I've, I have had even mentor mentee relationships shattered because I challenged believers on our social ethics. Uh, during those times, my encouragement is I'm taking a kingdom stand and not a worldly partisan or man-made tribal stand. And and the thing I, I, I take some solace in, my pastor in Dallas, uh, Dr. Evans, Tony Evans told me this before I left for seminary. He said, be sure of your calling because there will be times when it's all you have. It was the last thing he said to me as I was leaving. And I didn't I had no appreciation for how relevant that would be because I was young and wide-eyed and naive. <laughs> and then fast forward 15, 20 years, and I rest on that mm. like I would like I never imagined I would. I had to be sure that God is calling me to take this kingdom stand because I'm catching I'm catching blows from both sides. And it's disheartening, but but Christ is faithful. Well, thank you. It's been just an honor to share a bit of time together. Um, I hope that listeners will go out and grab a copy of your book, A Burning House, Redeeming American Evangelicalism by Examining Its History, Mission, and Message. Thanks for helping us examine some of that today, Brandon. And yeah, we re we remember, right, that as we examine the history and its sordid past of evangelicalism, that we have King Jesus on the throne right now. Thank you for having me. This was a blessed time. I thank you for doing this. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks. Thanks, Brandon. The Cartographers is hosted by Bryce Hales and Ashley Hales. It is edited by Nathan Michelle. The Cartographers is a production of Willowbray Institute. Find out more at willowbray.org. This episode is brought to you in part by the Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries podcast. Do you want to grow in your influence? Bow's episodes feature tips for leaders of any kind. From mentoring one woman to leading a ministry, browse Bows podcast at beyondordinarywomen.org.